let's pray together. Almighty God, we are so grateful that you give us your word. That, Lord, your, your word can be like seeds in our heart to bear fruit in our lives. And that, Lord, this morning, as we hear this story of you coming along these disciples, that we know that you are the resurrected Lord who comes alongside us. That your spirit opens our eyes to see not just your own resurrection and self, but, Lord, the whole world in new light. Pray that you allow for your spirit to move us all. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A few years ago, when we were living in Rwanda, I needed to get a desk made from my home office. Uh, there were a couple of wood markets in town, and frankly, there were local carpenters everywhere, and you could get just about anything made in Kigali that you wanted. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is that there wasn't dry wood, and so all of the wood uh, would crack eventually, but I was okay with that. I had sort of resigned myself to that reality. And so my friend Emmanuel was going to help me order it. So I took out some measuring tape, and I wrote down the dimensions of this simple table or desk on a piece of graph paper, along with a rudimentary sketch. And Emmanuel looks at the sketch, and he looks at me, and he says, you know, Brandon, this is really small. And so I double-checked the drawing, and I confirmed the measurements. I looked at it, and I said, you know, I, I don't need a big executive-style desk. I just need a table where I can put my laptop. And so he told me, all right, it's going to cost 11 bucks. Perfect, I thought. How cheap. Awesome. Well, so about a week later, uh, Emmanuel knocks on my door, and he carries in this tiny little wooden stool. It's exactly proportional to what I asked for, but way too small. And I laughed. I said, Emmanuel, what, what is this? And he was like, this is the stool you asked for. I was like, what? He's like, here are the measurements. And sure enough, I had measured in inches and written centimeters. So I ended up with exactly what I wanted, but it was 2.54 times exactly too small. We took some absolutely ridiculous photos of me hunched over typing on it. I think it was the most liked photo on Facebook that, that year. And the kids, I kid you not, the kids used it as a stool in the bathroom, and until the very day we left it in Rwanda last month, uh, referred to it as Daddy's Tiny Desk. And the thing that bothered me was not the fact that we had to make another desk. That was actually, it was well worth it to get a good laugh out of this tiny version. What bothered me was that I looked at that piece of paper. I double-checked that piece of paper, and I didn't see the glaringly obvious thing that was wrong right in front of me. I expected to see a desk. I looked at the numbers that I measured myself. How could I have not noticed that it would be this big? Seeing. It's, it's not just about having eyes that can perceive light. It's about having eyes to see, as scripture puts it. You see what you are expecting to see what you can see. You see what fits in your framework for what's possible. After our 40-hour trip home last month, my father-in-law was driving us back from Boston Logan Airport late at night, and I was delirious. I hadn't slept in probably 48 hours. But I kept thinking for a millisecond that the yellow reflectors on the sides of the roads were women carrying yellow jerry cans on their heads. After all, they don't have reflectors in Rwanda, but there are women carrying jerry cans everywhere. And my brain was scared because he was getting so close to these, these women carrying water. My brain was stuck in an old paradigm. And it's, it's a really good thing that our brains work that way most of the time. 
It allows us to filter and organize all the visual data that our brains take in and pick out the most useful parts. Look, it makes no sense to see women carrying water on their heads in Massachusetts. But this also blinds us. We don't see, we see what we expect to see, and we don't see other things that are right in front of us because they break our framework, our way of imagining the world. Well, the Gospel of Luke as a whole is about breaking our paradigms and shaking up the way that we imagine things. Luke wants to tell the story of Jesus in a way that breaks and turns the world upside down. And it starts right from the beginning with Mary. In the words of the Magnificat, which is uh, in the first chapter of Luke, she says this, He, the Lord, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. But the rich, he has sent away empty. The kingdom of God breaking in is upside down. And this kingdom of God that's breaking in is both the fulfillment and the establishing of God's purposes, the fulfilling of all that has come before and at the same time, shattering all the expectations of the people. It's continuity, but it's also disruption. And because of all this throughout the gospel, all the characters have a hard time seeing what is happening and understanding what God is doing, even when they should see perfectly clear. Zechariah can't accept that the Lord has told him until Elizabeth is pregnant, and he sees that the word of the Lord is moving. The scribes and Pharisees who know the scriptures better than anyone else can't see that Jesus is the Christ because he's not they expected. And most of all, the disciples, they just can't see. They can't see that the road to the glorification of the Son of Man goes straight through suffering and death. That the only way to truly recognize this Messiah is to see him poured out. They just can't understand what's happening. Even when it's staring them in the face, they can't see it. Even when Jesus explicitly tells them over and over again. You see, in chapter 9, it opens this theme of unseeing and not being able to understand. And that story of not being able to see is completed in chapter 24 this morning with the road to Emmaus. The scene opens with Jesus asking his friends in chapter 9, who is it that they say he is? Some say Elijah, some say a prophet, but Peter speaks up. You are the Christ of God. And so Jesus tells him the first time what it means for him to be the Christ. You know, sometimes he speaks in parables. This isn't one of those times. He tells them exactly what it means, that the Christ, he will have to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And Jesus also adds that the rest of them will have to suffer too if they want to follow him. And what does he get? Blank stares. And then Jesus goes up a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And while they're up there, Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. They see him in glory. And then Moses and Elijah come to talk with him about what Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. In other words, it was in the light of his suffering that his glory is revealed. And when the disciples come down the mountain, they, 
They don't talk about what they saw because they don't get it. Jesus tells all the disciples a second time explicitly what's going to transpire. So Luke 9, 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. So chapter 9 begins this long travel narrative in Luke. The text says that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, and the rest of the book of Luke is really a literal journey toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. But it's also a theological journey, a theological journey that is bringing the reader, showing them that it is through suffering and death that God is glorifying his son. And almost at the end of this journey, in chapter 18, as they arrive in Jerusalem, Jesus tells them a third time, in no complicated terms, that he would have to suffer and die and be raised again. And that first he must suffer before being glorified in order to fulfill what is written in Moses and the prophets. But it is still concealed from them. Now, there's a lot of discussion about whether God is the one concealing the truth from them, but there's no reason for Jesus to tell them three times and to beg that they let it sink into their ears if he doesn't want them to understand. No, something else is concealing it from them, and I think it's their own hearts, their own inability to embrace this upside-down kingdom, to let their own framework and imagination be reformed by what God is doing. And that makes our gospel reading all the more powerful. It's this final chapter of this drama of unseeing that Luke has woven throughout the whole book. Two disciples are walking, not toward Jerusalem as the whole book has been, but away from it, toward Emmaus. It is the first moment that Jesus has fully accomplished what he set out to do. They are walking away. These two disciples are slow of heart to believe. They are walking away, away from hopes and dreams, that Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. They are walking away without new eyes to see. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't want them to go all this way with him and not get it. And so he comes alongside them. He doesn't want them to be forlorn. He doesn't want them to leave until they can finally see what God has accomplished and done in the cross and resurrection. So he walks up beside them, and they're face to face with the risen Lord. They're blind. How slow of heart to believe you are, he says. And he shows them from Moses through the prophets why it was necessary for him to suffer before he was glorified. But they still don't see. And as night is setting on them, they stop. Jesus pretends to keep walking on the road. Now, it's a dangerous thing to walk at night. And these disciples, they want their new friend to be safe. So they implore him to come stay for fear of what might happen on the roads. And it's only when Jesus takes the bread and gives thanks and breaks it exactly as he did on the night before his death that they recognize him. I imagine a loaf of bread cracking the bread that he calls to know as us to know as his body, 
And in that moment, they finally see, and when they finally recognize him, he disappears. But immediately, immediately we know that these disciples are changed because it was not just the risen Christ that they recognized. It's the kingdom of God. All the pieces falling into place in this big reveal that transforms them by the renewing of their minds. They have eyes to see now the radical thing that God has done and everything else starts to make sense. Were not our hearts burning within us as he talked with us on the road? As he opened the scriptures to us? Then two men who were begging Jesus not to stay on the road at night throw all caution to the wind. And at that very hour, scripture tells us, they run back to Jerusalem, proclaiming he is risen indeed. He was made known to us in the breaking of bread, made known to us in the breaking of his body made known to us in the reading of scripture, made known to us as we walked in sorrow and darkness. But we, we have seen a great light. Through Lent, we also have walked the road to Jerusalem, to the cross with Jesus. We have been shouting our alleluias for a couple of weeks now, proclaiming his resurrection. But what does it mean for us to have eyes to see? What does it mean for us to recognize the risen Jesus as he joins us behind closed, locked doors or on walks when our hearts are full of sorrow, when we are also slow of heart to believe? It starts with belonging to a different kingdom, a kingdom where the vulnerable, the elderly, those with underlying conditions are cared for, valued, and protected. Over and over again in Luke, Jesus exhorts his disciples to see in the suffering, the isolated, the lonely, the forgotten, the unclean, the poor, as he puts it, persons of great value to his kingdom. Not for any function or purpose, but because of their innate value. And, their ability to perceive their own desperate need for God's grace. That, that is a radical reversal of how we are taught to see the world, is it not? Explicitly or implicitly. But the resurrection of Jesus is the vindication of the kingdom of God. Who could be more poor, more disinherited, more despised than the one who hung on a cross? And the resurrection, the resurrection is the vindication of all of those who are poor and forgotten in this world, but are beloved in the kingdom. It's the vindication of the kingdom's strange system of honor that invites the desperate and is so very difficult for the self-satisfied rich and proud to swallow. Grace, radical, impartial, all-consuming grace. To have resurrected eyes to belong to Jesus and his strange kingdom is to let go of all the things that we cling to for honor in this world and to embrace the radical grace that he offers. To embrace with radical grace those who suffer and are viewed as expendable. But that is no small task. Our minds and hearts are not so unlike these disciples who have walked with Jesus, who have hoped in Jesus, who know their scriptures, 
and yet are so often slow of heart to see. They wanted to add Jesus to their own kingdom as king, but Jesus, Jesus wanted them to become part of his kingdom. This resurrection of the Son of God is not just one more event in a sequence of events. It's the event through which all other events are interpreted, understood, seen rightly. And it asks us, who do we belong to? Do we belong to the crucified or to the crucifying powers of this world? Because who we belong to determines what we are able, conversely, what we are unable to see. And this is the part of my sermon when I'm supposed to be able to turn to the bread and wine beside me and say, do not leave without Jesus being known to you in the breaking of this bread. This is a sermon that is supposed to lead us to the Eucharist. But alas, we are a people constrained by our strange circumstances. Even so, this morning, come and know that the Lord is good, that he draws near to you even if you do not yet have eyes to see him and to recognize him beside you. But even more, as we are a people who begin to recognize this risen Lord, may we also be a people who can recognize and have new eyes to see the kingdom of God all around us and those who are forgotten and broken and poor and yet are the very treasures of the kingdom of God. That is what it means to be an Easter people to be a resurrection people, to be people who carry the flames of hope into a world that has long forgotten what that means. And if ever there was a moment for us to be that beacon of hope in the world, I think it's today. Pray with me. Almighty God, we are so grateful that you are the one who comes alongside us when we are slow of heart to believe. Lord, that you are the one who opens our eyes. But Lord, in seeing you, let us see everything differently. May we be a people who are completely transformed by the renewing of our minds, giving new paradigms to live, to love you and others. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.